Gents, we've only got an hour to do this. Oh dear. So I am going to suggest a request that you go first from the lectern. Sure. And then Paul, and then we're going to have a chat and sort it all out, I think. Okay. All right. I'll go first then. So consciousness is a wonderful thing. It is. It is both the most familiar and the most mysterious aspect of, of our existence. Conscious experiences define our lives, but the private and the subjective, uh, the sheer what it is likeness of a conscious experience has long seemed to resist scientific inquiry. And how can the redness of red, the pang of jealousy, or the sense of wonder itself emerge from the physical and biological processes inside our bodies and brains? That's it seems to be a question that's very hard to know how even to answer it. But among all conscious experiences that we have, one or one collection of experiences is very special, and that's the experience of being a conscious self, of being me or of, or of being you. And how could this ever be explained in terms of biology and physics? And I think we'll, what we're going to be talking about for the next hour. As was just mentioned by Gavin, when we think about consciousness, it's hard to avoid Descartes, who back in the 17th century, of course, distinguished between uh, matter stuff, the stuff that tables and chairs and brains and bodies are made out of, and mind stuff, res, ex, res cogitans, the stuff of, of thought, of perception, of belief, and of experience. But Descartes has another legacy as well, and uh, this is his idea of, of the beast machine. Now, for Descartes, to put it in a kind of caricature way, he argued that only humans have minds or rational souls to direct their actions, to guide their behavior. And the other animals were merely fleshy machines. And in this view, or beast machines, and in this view, the physiological mechanisms that give rise to, uh, to life are not that relevant to mind, self, or consciousness. And what I certainly want to, to suggest and describe a little bit is quite the opposite, uh, that our being a conscious self depends critically and is constituted in part by our nature as flesh and blood animals, that we are beast machines too. And the direction to take here, and this is an idea that, that um, actually I was very inspired by reading some of Paul's work several years ago, um, is the idea of the brain as a prediction machine. And uh, this, is, this is not Paul, this is um, Hermann von Helmholtz, who was a German physician and physiologist in the 19th century. And He's, he's now commonly associated with this idea of the, the brain as a prediction engine or, or the Bayesian brain. There are many other different ways to call it. But the basic idea is very simple. The brain is locked inside a bony skull. Uh, and all it receives are noisy and ambiguous sensory signals, which are only very indirectly related to objects and things out there in the world. And the body is an object out there in the world from the perspective of the brain, too. So in order to perceive in order to make sense of these ambiguous and noisy sensory signals, the brain has to engage in a process of informed guesswork. It has to make its best guess about the causes of those sensory signals based on what they are, but also on its prior expectations and beliefs. Not necessarily consciously held ones, but ones that it may be deeply wired into the brain structure. And here's one very simple example of how this works. This is a very well-known visual illusion called Adelson's checkerboard. Now, if you look at the, the two 
um, patches here, A and B, they should all, they should look different shades of grey. I'm, I'm, I'm taking that you will see, you'll experience them as different shades of grey, but of course it's an illusion, so they are in fact exactly the same shade, and I can show you that by just joining them up here on the right. And if you think I'm in having, doing some form of trickery or messing you around, I'm not. I can bring that grey bar over there, and you'll see they're exactly the same shade of grey, in fact. And if I take the bar away again, they look different. Um, this is actually a good example of the success of the visual system, not its failure, because the visual system is not designed to be an accurate light meter. It's designed to tell you what's out there. And what's going on here is that the brain has deeply wired into its structure knowledge about the effect of shadows. The brain knows in some sense that a cast shadow dims the appearance of surfaces, so we experience this patch as lighter than it actually is. Now, a more everyday example would be something like walking out on a foggy morning. You're expecting to see a friend, um, and you actually might perceive them to be there until you get up close and you realize it's in fact a stranger. The way you see the world is shaped by your expectations of what's going on. And this way of thinking actually transforms the way in which people think how the brain does perception. This is a bit of a straw man idea, but the classical view long held is that perception works in this kind of bottom-up way. So sensory signals come in, let's say to the retina, this is actually the monkey brain, and signals get processed uh, through deeper and deeper levels of the brain, and each, each, uh, the further you get in, the more abstract, um, the more sophisticated the processing becomes, so from simple shapes and, and, and lines to faces and objects and complex things. Now, in this view, the perceptual heavy lifting is done from this, from this bottom-up or outside-in direction. But the idea of the prediction machine changes things around dramatically, so we now can think of perception working in a, in a top-down or inside-out way, so that what really matters for how we experience the world are all the signals that are flowing from deep within the brain out towards the sensory surfaces so that we create the world of experience largely based on our brain's expectations, our predictions of what's, what's out there. Um, and perception becomes then this continuous process by which the brain minimizes the errors, the so-called prediction errors, between what it expects and what it gets at every level of processing, right down to the retina. And I think Paul will, will describe a little bit how we can start to understand what happens when this process goes awry in various forms. In fact, we can start to simulate some of that stuff. This is um, a short video from Kesuke Suzuki, one of my colleagues at Sussex, and what we've done here is we've used um, virtual reality, so you'd experience this through a headset, an Oculus headset, and we've taken a panoramic video of the campus of Sussex University and fed it through one of these Google Deep Dream algorithms, I don't know if you've seen those, which turn plates of pasta into loads of dog heads. Um, so we can do this uh, now in a highly immersive way to give people a rather unusual experience, and this, this it's kind of fun, but there's a serious purpose here, which is to simulate what's going on when the brain has, if you like, overactive priors. It's, it's imposing its predictions about the world onto the sensory data um, more than it normally would. And here, uh, the predictions are that everything is a dog, um, or, or maybe a snail. And um, you know, this plays in, in everyday life as well. We can interpret shadows in, in, in various ways if we're expecting them to be something. So, so far, and, it, and I've been talking about vision mainly, and the idea is that, the, that, that our, our visual perceptual experience, but also our auditory perceptual experience, 
all our classic perceptions are the result of the brain's best guess of the causes of its sensory input. And a nice way to capture that is that the reality we experience, or, or the world that we experience, is a fantasy that coincides with reality, at least most of the time, but not always. Now I want to come on to, to self in the, in the last part of these opening remarks, and the, to the idea that, that we experience the self in pretty much exactly the same way, that it is the brain's best guess of in this case, sensory signals that are, that are related to the self. But there are many ways in which we experience being a self or having a self. There's the bodily self, which is the experience of being a body and of having this particular object in the world that is our body. There's the perspectival self, the, the experience of seeing the world from a particular first-person point of view. The experience of being the cause, being initiating actions and being of the cause of things that happen. The narrative self is where the I comes in. None of this other stuff requires a name or a sense of me being a continuous entity through time. That comes in later with the narrative self, which is formed of episodic memories of things that happened over time, and the social self, the way we experience ourselves perceived through the minds of others, refracted through the minds of others. Now I'll just talk about the bodily self in these opening remarks. And so the idea that I want to suggest is that our experience of being and having a body is an is a informed guess in just the same way that seeing a friend on a foggy day is also an informed guess, and it's a guess that can go wrong. So the brain is continuously making predictions now, not only about the causes of, say, sensory visual signals, but also about its position in, um, in space. This is proprioception, the sense of body position and, and configuration. And I think particularly interesting and back to this idea of flesh and blood, is interoception. This is the sense of the body from within, and we often don't think about it so much, but a large part of what the brain does is to perceive and regulate its internal physiological state, to stay alive. And emotions, but all sorts of other bodily feelings, are conveyed by a raft of, of different kinds of sensory signals that, that travel from within the body up to the brain. And the brain has to make its best guess of these signals too, what's causing them. One implication of thinking this way is that our experience of being a body and having a body is more flexible than we might expect it to be. We tend to think of our experience of being a self as relatively unified, relatively integrated, relatively stable, and relatively continuous. But there are some classic experiments that show that that is not true. You may have already seen this. Many people have now. This is something we do in the lab. It's called the rubber hand illusion. And here, by having somebody focus their visual attention on a fake hand and stroking the fake hand. Um, <laughs> that congruence of the, the, the... You can see the touch, you feel touch, and you see an object that looks a bit like a hand. That's enough evidence for the brain to reach the conclusion, well, yeah, I know it doesn't look like my hand, but it must be my hand, and that, of course, is the best way to test whether the illusion is working. Um, what we've done at, at Sussex, one thing we've done to play with this is we've wondered whether our sense of what is or what is not our body is also determined by these signals that come from inside the body, these interoceptive signals from, from the viscera, from the heart, from the gut. And we again use this virtual reality sort of setup here so that instead of an actual rubber hand, we have a virtual rubber hand. And in this case, it's a bit hard to see what's going on. You would see this as a 3D image, but the virtual um, 
rubber hand is now flashing in time or out of time with your heartbeat. We record somebody's heartbeat at the same time and project it onto this virtual reality version of their hand. And it turns out that indeed, if the hand is flashing in time with your heartbeat, you're more likely to experience it as your own hand. Um, and you can do plenty of other things with this VR setup. And this is just really just shows that, that our experience of something so basic as what our body is can be very, very flexible, very open to change. You can even give people uh, different color skin to see if they become more or less racist uh, by em embodying them with, with dark colored hands, for instance. And this is experiments have been done. My, my sort of favorite one, I think, is coming up now where we, we can give people the experience of having a body size that telescopes up and down uh, quite dramatically. There is, a, in fact, a neurological condition where people report experiences much like that, called Alice in Wonderland syndrome, for obvious reasons. You, you experience your body as changing dramatically in shape, but you still experience it as your body. So this just shows to me that, that our experience of the body is, is another best guess. It's very weird when your hand gets very small. It feels very strange. So self, then, is also the brain's best guess, in this case, of self-related sensory signals. Now, just to finish these opening remarks, I wanted to... Um, uh, we were talking about octopuses earlier, and I've worked a little bit with octopuses over the last few years. And just to try to imagine how all these processes might be different in a creature like the octopus. Now, the octopus doesn't write books, it doesn't reason necessarily, but um, they are incredibly alien creatures. I spent a week in a marine biology lab in Naples a few years ago um, just observing them and interacting with them. And you get the, the keenest sense of, of a, a presence, an intelligence very different from our own. And if you think about, about how different they are, they have three hearts, they have jet-based propulsion systems, um, they can figure out how to solve complicated mazes. This guy's trying to get a crab out of a jar. But just try to think what the experience of being and having a body might be like for this octopus. They have half a billion neurons. Quite big, six times more than a mouse. But most of their neurons are actually in their arms and not in their central brain. So there might indeed be something it's like to be an octopus arm. And uh, it turns out that octopuses, instead of knowing where their arms are in space in, as we do through proprioceptive signals, that would be very complicated for an octopus because they would, it's just, their arms are everywhere. Uh, they have this kind of chemical-based self-recognition system. So their, their, their skin secretes a particular chemical that stops the other arms uh, binding onto it. So the philosopher Thomas Nagel long ago said, asked the question, what is it like to be a bat? To sort of underline the unknowability of the subjective life of, of other creatures. And I, I rather think a better question is, what is it like to be an octopus? Because you really get the feeling there is something it is like. That's just for comparison. Human brain, octopus brain, very different. We know lots. Well, we know a bit. We know almost nothing. So to finish these opening remarks, then, I think this does bring us back to Descartes, that our conscious selfhood is not in spite of the fact that we are flesh and blood creatures. It's rather because of them that the way we experience being a body, having a body, that basic sense of being an embodied organism before names, before your social environment even comes into it, the basic sense of being alive comes from predictions about the internal state of the body. So uh, instead of, I think, therefore I am, I prefer to say, I predict myself, therefore I am.
So I'll leave that. Bit. Um, Anil has made a, a very eloquent adumbration of the idea of the brain as a predictive machine, and I'd like to take that a little bit further with a sort of broader idea that fits very nicely with it, of the brain as a model of the world within which it must survive. The idea is that the brain must, um, can't help but recapitulate the associations and regularities of the world within which it moves, and that this process necessarily because its uh, inputs are so nugatory, so, so am ambiguous and, and inconsistent and noisy, must derive from a process of fabrication and assembly. And as a psychiatrist, I'm particularly interested in what can go wrong when there's a perturbation of that process of assembly something that may culminate, even with a very small perturbation, in a radical reconceptualization of one's reality and a, a complete dissolution of the boundaries between oneself and the, the world and the people around one, or at least an experience of a dissolution of that. Um, so I'm not going to talk about psychiatric illnesses generally. Indeed, the processes I'm talking about may be perturbed in a number of different settings, including medical illnesses, neurological illnesses, drug intake, severe anxiety and trauma. So this is not diagnostic, this is descriptive. And I just want to give you a sense of one of the experiences that people may have. Um, this is auditory verbal hallucinations. And this was compiled with a group of individuals, very talented individuals I'm working with in a video design uh, studio in, in, in Cambridge. Uh, they're called Ninja Theory. And working with people who've experienced voice hearing, they compiled this and other experiences. And I, I just want to give you a brief clip of it. I, it dawns on me that it's actually quite unpleasant. It only lasts a few seconds, so if you feel that it might upset you, and by the law of averages, some people will have experienced the, these phenomena amongst you, um, do feel free to put your fingers in your ears. Uh, could, we, could we play the clip, please? Coward. They're coming. Coward. Coward. They're coming now. They're coming. This is a very deeply disturbing experience for many people. Um, this is not, um, you know, this doesn't rep represent any one individual. This compiled over a series of individuals. But um, the, the question emerges for somebody with a scientific interest, what sort of perturbation could lead to a creative act like that, to have those experiences that are so real, and yet so unsupported by apparent evidence and unshared by the people around one? And actually, uh, the process that Anil's described, I think, gives us a clue, this idea of fabrication and assembly of our perceptions on the basis of our prior expectations. Um, and I want to give you an example of that working in everyday life. So if you, if you could just play the clip on the left, please. So to most people that will be probably indecipherable, but to me it's very clear because I have a prior experience and knowledge that enables me to disambiguate that. And I'm going to give you that knowledge now. So could, could you play the clip on the right, please? The camel was kept in a cage at the zoo. So armed with that prior expectation and knowledge, you should be able to discern this. So it's easily possible now, implicitly, without any real effort, 
um, to, to, to make sense of that. And this is an incredibly useful, efficient way of dealing with noisy sense data to which we have only partial access. But of course, it doesn't take much to take that a bit further. Um, when I was younger, when we had vinyl records, um, people used to like playing them backwards to hear the sounds, uh, or, or to hear the hidden messages from the bands. And in fact, this practice is alive and well. Um, on the internet, there's a very interesting um, website called Reverse Speech, which is based upon the pre, uh, or the, the belief that speech has two meanings. There's the superficial meaning, which is conveyed by s what somebody says when it's played forward, but there's a deeper hidden meaning, uh, which can only be heard in the backward speech. And with enormous dedication, a team of people harboring this belief have taken clips from multiple politicians and found out the hidden messages. Um, and, and so here's an art example of this. Um, this is President Bush uh, welcoming the Queen to the White House. I'll just play the whole thing. So first you'll hear the superficial message, then you'll hear the deeper message when it's played backwards, and then I'll, just to help you, in case you can't work out what it is, I'll, the, the end bit will reveal all. Laura and I are honored to welcome back to the White House Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and His Royal Highness Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. So, I'm not sure if any of you got that, and in fact, as an aside, there's a certain amount of irony with the current president-elect, in whom it's something of a challenge to hear coherent speech when it's played forwards. <laughs> I hope the sound recordist got that because it's the most perfect example of despairing laughter I've ever heard. <laughs> um, so we have this situation in which we do have a workable model of how people could create a world that is by definition psychotic, which actually means unshared with the people around it. But it goes much further than that and really um, poses major challenges to our understanding. So the person with these experiences may actually come to disavow ownership of their body, um, and Anil's described this very beautifully, the idea that a, a, a part of you no longer belongs to you, or more commonly that, that than that is the experience that one has lost a sense of agency, that one is no longer the author of one's own actions or even the owner of one's own emotions. And for me, the most puzzling and taxing and wondering aspects of this is the situation in which a person may actually come to feel that they don't no longer possess their own inner thoughts. So they may experience these thoughts, but actually attribute them to some external agents. And I think that really taxes our powers of comprehension, never mind explanation, to the utmost, because they seem to indicate a dissociation between the self and the thoughts, something that we would normally intimately link. Now, ultimately, bringing this back to wonder, I think a very striking thing for me in talking to people who've um, gone through the trajectory towards major psychotic illness in whatever form is actually that it's often driven by wonder. Um, they often describe an experience that the world has become newly salient, newly wondrous. There are things that no longer feel right, they feel sinister. There's a sense of what's been referred to as Unheimlichkeit, which is an uncanniness. Um, uh, so that people feel that their own perceptions and inferences, their own 
actions, with their outcomes, their own uh, experiences and emotions, and even their, their thoughts are actually laden with this uncanniness. And this sets them on a quest to find the explanation for this new world with which they're confronted. Um, they, they, they discard their everyday explanations, looking for something that can really uh, provide a framework for understanding these new experiences. And so I think taking all that into account, one thing that um, is worth finishing on uh, to, to perhaps frame the discussion is that we have a brain that is creating its own world and that the drawback of that, of course the advantage of that is that it's highly efficient, it re resolves noise as I showed you with the speech, um, but at the same time it's fabricating a world and so the world can become created by the brain. Now the antidote to that is a, a brain that is wondering about the world, a, a brain that is revising its own conceptualizations in order to fit with what's coming in. And it's achieving that balance which actually may be the major marker of mental health and failing to achieve it or achieving it in a different way that ultimately resides in psychiatric illness. Um, I'd like to leave you wondering, so I'm not going to say anything about this, but I suspect some of you will wonder what it is and I'll show you at the end perhaps. Thank you both. Um, so, does it, I mean, T.S. Eliot, the, the poet, the, one of his lines is, the knowledge imposes a pattern and falsifies, for the pattern is new in every moment. Is it your suggestion then, therefore, that we are, rather than the old, you know, what I learned as a medical student, photons fall on the retina, a nice mechanistic um, bit of machinery, and then is interpreted further downstream, that in fact the interpretation or the knowledge, or the memory, or the belief systems are then actually informing the perception, which in its raw entity is photons or sound waves or whatever. Yeah, I um, yes, I think so. There's a, there's a couple of things there. I think it's, it, it's tempting to think of this, this bright line distinction between sensation, perception, yeah. and cognition. That, that, you know, there's something visual um, out there, and, and that we have a visual experience, and then we might interpret it in some ways, and perhaps that interpretation can shape what we see. But certainly, I think in, in a lot of the research that, that we and others are, are doing, it, it's showing a much more continuous blend of these things. So your, your beliefs can be conscious, explicitly held beliefs about a friend being out there in, in the fog, or, or can be something much lower level about what happens to an object under, under shadow. Uh, but all of these, th there's, this, there's this permeation of, of belief to perception to sensation, I think, all the way down. But there's also nothing non-mechanistic about it. Mm -hmm. I think the, the challenge is to figure out what actually the brain is doing when it's doing that. And there are these computational principles of, of Bayesian inference, which, um, which are used in all, I mean, they're used a lot in medical diagnoses to figure out the most likely organic cause for a particular set of symptoms. And it's a beautiful set of principles, but is the brain actually doing them? We don't know yet. Yeah, no, I, I think there's uh, an additional point to make in relation to that. Uh, and it, it draws out a very interesting paradox, which I think can help us to sort of try and angle it towards the light a bit. So, 
Yes, absolutely. From the very earliest stages, there is a top-down influence on what's going on. And an example of that is, and it may come from very top-down, so there's some interesting experiments on gaze bias adaptation, which I won't go into, but essentially, uh, when you're looking at somebody's gaze, if you see a lot of people gazing to the left, you tend to internally adapt at a very low level, so that subsequently you view a straight-on gaze as being to the right. It's as though you've re recalibrated. Now, that effect actually has recently been shown to be highly dependent on what you think they're looking at and whether you think they can see. So this higher-order belief about their state of mind is fundamentally shifting something that's going on at the very lowest level of the visual system. But paradoxically, there's also the situation beautifully illustrated by Anil's um, illusion, where you can get this dissociation between what you know and what you perceive. So we all know, or we, we, I hope we all accept that those squares were the same color, but did anyone perceive that? Um, so there's this interesting cognitive impermeability that we really don't understand, while at the same time a knowledge that at all levels are feeding back to all other levels. So the perception in itself doesn't exist in isolation. There's a continuum of that appraisal. Yeah, that, that's world, right. And I think the, the question, back to your original thing, is you know, what's, what's more important in that game? Is it, is it what's coming in or is it what's coming back out? And that, it seems to be, to me, to be it's what's coming back out, projected out. Mm. And part of that is, again, experimental evidence that you can, you can interrupt um, with various experimental methods, basically zapping the brain with, with a brief electrical pulse, you can interrupt the top-down mm. flow of signals, mm. leaving the bottom-up flow intact, and uh, that abolishes your, your conscious visual perception, but the other way around doesn't seem to matter so much. And interestingly, the octopus then, in fact, quite clearly, almost open-bookly, represents that, doesn't it? Where, where the, what you're calling perception, you know, very sensitive perception in multiple arms, is the consciousness. Well, I mean, I used, brought up the octopus um, just because I think it underlines that the, the, there's a, a whole space of possible perceptual worlds and that we inhabit just one of them. And, it's not, and we tend also even to think of the Aristotelian senses as defining that. That's not even the case. Senses bleed into one another and we have all these vestibular and proprioceptive and interoceptive senses. Um, we don't have no idea whether no. the octopus is applying these same ideas sure. of of predictive perception. Yeah. And perhaps the key thing, and I think it was nicely brought out in a, in a comment you made about colour vision, which is that I don't think the brain is particularly interested in what's real. It's interested in what works. Yeah. Uh, what enables you to know what's going to happen next? Because prediction is the single most uh, powerful evolutionary survival tool that we, we can possibly imagine. And Better to be a good predictor than to be ferocious or fast or strong. Is that what you both mean then when you're talking about variously the best guess, the best approximation or the model? That well, actually what, what, what it needs to be functional rather than necessarily true. It needs to help us survive. Yes, I, I think it's important that neither of us to say, and I don't want to speak for you, Anna, but neither of us are really... I mean, we're speaking in these terms as though the brain is laboriously con constructing a prediction, but actually, as you saw with the, s the speech example I gave, it's, it's very effortless, automatic, and implicit, and unavoidable. So it's not a, it's not a, a conscious effort to predict the world. Yes. But at the same time, I think there's an argument to be said that actually, and I, th I think, again, this was made very nicely uh, by analysts, that the, the contents of the prediction are the contents, you know, the, the, or the contents of consciousness are the prediction. Are the prediction. Uh, and, but, and it also depends on what, what, the function, what you mean by function, what's the relevant object, what the brain is trying to do in virtue of having a, a prediction. And here I think there are interesting differences between 
the different kinds of predictions that the brain may make. So if we think about vision, the result of a visual prediction is often a world, an external world full of objects in various places. Because vision is a distal sense, the signals we get come from a world that's usually quite far away. And so the way we experience that is, is sort of re reflects that aspect of the, the cause of those signals. But um, why prediction is, a, is one of the, the best mechanisms in evolution is because prediction also enables control. If you want to regulate or control something, especially if you want to prevent it from being knocked awry by a, by a, a disturbance, a perturbation, you best have a model that allows you to anticipate a perturbation and, and prevent it from, from um, deviating. So we all have physiological variables that need to be maintained in very specific ranges, our body temperature, various concentrations of, of chemicals and hormones circulating through our, through our bodies. And my thought is that, that the predictive models that engage with these signals from within the body don't really care about the, what, what the body is actually like. Um, but really care about controlling it, about regulating it, about staying alive. And I don't quite know how this is going to play out, but, but that might have some relevance to the fact that we experience the inside of our bodies, of being a body, in a very different way from it being an object in the world. Yes. And, and sorry, I'll let no, go on. Well, I mean, this is something that von Helmholtz um, was very interested in, the idea that when you slide your eyes across the world, the world doesn't feel like it's moving across your retina. Yes. Um, actually, you have a perception of a very stable world uh, with a moving eye. And that's because it's likely that parallel predictions are sent to tell you to expect the sensory consequences and then allow for and dampen them. And I, I, think I, mean, I guess it's almost a metaphysical question, though, isn't it? So are, we, are you suggesting that the, our, the world we inhabit is completely illusory on the premise, on the basis of that, the patterns we are imposing, or that there is a firm, concrete reality out there, and our best guess, guess gets very close to it. I think we can get lost down a metaphysical plug hole. Um, <laughs> <laughs> trying hole, to avoid we'll because yeah, the, I mean, there, I, may, I, to be honest, I don't really care whether there's stuff out there or not. I like to think there probably is, right. but it doesn't really matter. We experience the world in a particular way, and some people go the other way and will say, you know, more idealist, and say all that we really know exists is our, our conscious experiences. The real question is whether mm. there's such a thing as matter. You know, that's mm. the hard mm. part mm. of mm. of the Cartesian divide, um, but. It seems the most natural way to explain our experiences of the world and of self is as this interplay between something out there and the expectations we bring to bear. And, and even before Helmholtz, Kant said it quite well in terms of his ideas of the productive imagination, that there is this continual interchange between yes. our prior beliefs and, the rea and whatever might be out there, if anything. Yes. And I, I think you know, the notion that we all carry around our own model yes. of that world is, is to me interesting for two reasons. Firstly, because it's well known that all models are wrong. The question is how useful they yeah. are. I should say all models are wrong except mine. Um, <laughs> I'm the only one who has direct contact with reality. Um, but, but also, um, you know, it, it reminds us certainly in psychiatry that the brain can never be seen as the ultimate reductionist explanation for a series of symptoms or a series of suffering because the brain can only meaningfully be described within the context of the world that it is striving to model. Um, so what, in that case, just to go further into what's happening in psychosis and psychopathology, taking Anil's point in, in terms of the existential plug hole, but still, something's happening there. Is the model just more faulted? Or is it 
another model that happens to leave people unwell, unhealthy, distressed, because it's not a good model. Well, the first thing to, to say, sorry, I keep brushing my microphone, okay. is, is that nobody knows. You know, we've all got our theories, and as somebody said, theories are like toothbrushes, you know, everyone has one, but nobody wants to use anyone else's. Um, <laughs> the, the, so my theory <laughs> is that by thinking about this balance between writing the world in the image of what you already know, compared to allowing the world to tell you everything, to wonder about everything, to be continually revising your conceptualizations. I think we can perhaps see psychosis as a, a shift of balance in one direction mm. or the other. Now, that may, be, that may arise for a whole number of reasons. It may be chemical, it may be drug-related, it may be traumatic. Mm. Um, but ultimately, I think that allows us a sort of explanatory framework for thinking about it. Mm. The question of what ultimately caused it and how it may be treated or dealt with is, is perhaps not entirely, you know, doesn't, doesn't necessarily relate directly to that question. But one thing I should say is that, um, you know, I, I think there are advantages to, to that. So for, I, I put this up because this is a task that in patients who are prone to hallucinations, they're very good at this. The question is, what, what's in that image? And I, I, perhaps I could show yes. it. Yeah, so yeah, thank you. If we show people these images um, and then we show them the original image from which they were drawn, um, then people who are prone to psychosis are actually incredibly good at using that prior information to then uh, re or disambiguate the original image. And I think better you can point controls. to two instances. So actually better than controls yes, doing that. Better than controls. Okay. So I think, I think there's a danger of saying, calling this dysfunction, yes. um, failure yes. of a system. I mean, ultimately, the model is either good or bad. It makes you suffer or you don't. Yes, yes. But the, the actual change in balance, I think, can be useful in, under different circumstances. You both clearly have a shared view in terms of the prediction, best guess theories. Uh, how much is this um, a shared view across the neuroscientific community substantiated by evidence, be it functional MRI or what? Just you. <laughs> <laughs> and now me. But is it, is, it, is it something that's now arrived at as a way of viewing the world, or is there still much debate and doubt about it as a, as a model? It's, well, I, back to, to Helmholtz again, the ideas have been around for, for a very long time, really, and have sort of come and gone in, in waves. I think it's fair to say that over the last... 10 years or so, possibly longer. In fact, it was really in, in, in psychiatry, I think, that they first started gaining some new cachet with, with Chris Frisk and parasite hypothesis, things like this, that, that we can start to understand uh, unusual experiences as mismatches between um, expectations and, and data. It's becoming pretty broadly uh, discussed and described but the problem with it, it's a little bit like um, evolution, in, in that um, it's very hard to come up with direct experimental evidence that something like this is going on. Bayes, Bayesian ideas, this idea of, of explaining some pat pattern of data, finding the most likely cause of, of some pattern of data, can explain almost anything. Because you just have to change what you assume the priors are going to be, and you can explain any. My behaviour can always be Bayes right. optimal right. if I change what I what the expectations <laughs> were. So the challenge in, in certainly in, in my area of neuroscience, computational neuroscience now, is to go from these 
very compelling. I mean, it's such a beautiful idea, as Paul was saying yesterday. It's, it's so, such a beautiful idea. It has to be right. It'd be such a shame if it wasn't right um, in some way. But to go from there to finding evidence, for instance, of, of, of signals that really do capture this discrepancy between a prediction and a signal and show that, that the brain is... A, a key question here, is the brain operating on probabilities? Does the brain do... Computer, is that the currency of the brain, <laughs> representing and computing with probability distributions? There's a lot of evidence that that might be the case. After all, all these neurons have got to be doing something. Um, but it is still an open question. What, sorry, Paul, go on. Well, yeah. I think it's probably worth unpacking the idea of the, the Bayesian yep. brain very briefly, because I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who they, aren't We've all got it. No, we haven't. We haven't <laughs> <laughs> no, tell me, me that. No, no idea. So, I mean, this goes back to Thomas Bayes, an 18th century Presbyterian minister who came up with a very powerful insight that when you're updating your beliefs about something, essentially you use a combination not just of the evidence in front of you, but what you already know. So the example I think that is based in a nutshell, you're walking down a lane in Devon, you hear hoof taps around the corner in front of you. Um, the actual evidence is highly com compatible with it being a horse, but it's also compatible with it being a zebra or a man banging coconut shells together. Um, but you know it's going to be a horse that comes around the corner rather than a zebra or a man. And, and that's Bayes' theorem in action, essentially. But it's also it's, it's kind of strange. It, it, it's so powerful and it works, and it works in statistics, but it was also disreputable for much of the 20th century in statistics because it's subjective. You can't do Bayes unless you, you, you have some prior guess. And um, so the breaking of the Enigma code by Turing was, was largely done using Bayes Bayesian ideas, although it wasn't really admitted at the time. Just say a bit more about that, in what way, how? Uh, in that there was, uh, you're, trying, you're trying to map these, these, they were reading the codes, right, from, from the Enigma machines in the Second World War, and they're trying to decode them, to understand them, and you're trying to explore this huge space of, of possible mappings from the codes to what they might, uh, for their decoded versions. And the only way to do that, or, or the way it worked eventually, was by making some informed guesses mm. about what they might mean, that, that the <laughs> certain letters would crop up at the beginning of mm. words quite frequently. And so that was, that was purely Bayesian. Turing called it Banbarismus, actually, rather than because mm. it was where it was near Banbury in Oxfordshire. He was doing all that stuff. And more recently, looking for um, uh, when the hunt for Red October. You remember the hunt for Red October, mm. the sub that went missing? Mm. That was also done using Bayes. You had to make guesses about where it was where most likely yeah. to be. Yeah. And, uh, but it was, it was considered rather a dark art in statistics yes. because you've got to yeah, bring judgment to it. Yeah. But, you know, We're that saying works. that's the system, yeah. yeah. So Turing, you've mentioned Turing. What are the implications, for, or particularly oh. thinking about consciousness as this top-down model or at least um, co-present with perception, what are the implications for artificial intelligence? Does that mean, actually, because the way you've described it makes AI seem suddenly tenable? I think there's a couple of implications. One, one very interesting part of the resurgence of these ideas has been that within artificial intelligence, some of these processes are being used very effectively. Um, in fact, that kind of uh, video of of Sussex campus getting all a bit psychedelic, that, that's generated using some of these same ideas of, of deep hierarchical processing with some top-down input. Um, and uh, so when it comes to doing things that computers were previously not very good at doing, like 
um, understanding natural language, understanding speech, passing visual images into objects, uh, these methods can, uh, are creating massive, massive progress. On the other hand, I think these ideas also suggest that to be that it's, it's too quick to make the leap from saying something that is that we build out of out of computers, whatever. If it can do visual perception quite well, then it's going to have visual experience. I think these perspectives underline the importance of being, of having and being a body. And within AI, there is a, there, there are people that think AI is all about finding the right way to program a computer. And you get the program right, you'll have artificial intelligence, and maybe you also attribute it with, with a conscious mind. I think, again, rather the opposite is the case, that um, we need to understand how our basic sense of embodied selfhood emerges out of the interactions between brains and bodies and their immediate environments. And that's something which has been, uh, is in AI, is still very far from... And is that happening. partly, though, because for by your descriptions, there isn't a self necessarily, so much as a number of parallel selves, our internal self, the self in which we relate it to the world, self, without again getting too mystical or um, all the world is illusion about it, may not be just that one single entity. Is that a fair... Yeah, I mean, Paul described this beautifully as well, that this idea of... of, of dissociations between the self and the thoughts that the self might might have and, and s things that to people who don't experience those dissociations seem almost un unthinkable and I think that's the uh, one of the most exciting uh, parts of the studying this with cognitive neuroscience and, and also probably one of the most challenging aspects in in the clinic is is to to get ourselves away from these very, very deep assumptions yeah. about what a self is and yes. what the necessary, and we think things in, uh, just have to be unified, yeah. and they aren't. They can come apart in all these different ways. Mm. Paul? Yeah, well, I think that's a very good point, and I think the other thing that emerges from Anil's um, ideas and work is um, a complete rejection of this distinction between the physical and the mental. Mm. I mean, I was having a very interesting conversation last night about the impact of just bowel health on on subjective experience and, and brain health. And uh, I think it, increasingly, neuroscientists are starting to look closely at bodily signals, as Anil has demonstrated. Just before we come up for questions, would either of you just say anything in terms of what the implications there are in terms of patients, particularly patients like, famously like HM, who had no short-term um, memory, what that means then for a sense of a continuous self, either of you, really, how much of those given we're saying that there's a, there's a top-down informing of perception, if, if that, if that, if that top-down informing is aberrated, what does that then mean for a sense of continuous self? Well, well, one, if I could start, well, I mean, one very striking thing about HM and other people who suffer from these very dense amnesias is that they don't actually lose a sense of self. Mm. What they lose is a sense of continuity within which that self is placed. So um, another person is, I think, Clive Ponting, the civil servant who had severe uh, temporal lobe damage, he, he, he describes, it's, it, it feels like I'm waking up every few minutes. Um, he'd come into a room, he'd be there for a while, he'd then rouse himself, oh, it's, it's like I've been gone forever. But there was no, I, I didn't get a sense that he'd lost a feeling of being a sort of complete self. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a great example. H. M. and is it Clive Clive Wearing, the other guy? Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. That's, uh, Clive Ponting was somebody completely um, different. Yeah, it's a, the, the, 
but it, yeah, he had these, these extraordinary diaries, where, didn't he? He wrote sort of, I am awake for the first time for the very first time. And, and yeah, it, it's, I think, recognizing that there are different dimensions on different elements of selfhood can probably help in, in medicine in sort of making sense of people's experience of what's going on. You say, no, you're not going, you're not going crazy. You're not going nuts. You have this, this one specific element of selfhood which, which is disturbed or which might be, be damaged in some way, but the rest of, of, of things are still there. And then I think that the, you know, the work Paul's doing and more broadly is within psychiatry is, is incredibly exciting because it marks a transition, and I say this from a, an outside perspective, I'm not, not a clinician, but it marks a transition from treating symptoms um, to actually getting at the mechanisms. And I like, you know, it might be a very superficial way of saying it, but it's a bit like the distinction between taking a painkiller and taking an antibiotic for an infection. And of course, if we can start treating uh, the causes, um, then that marks a great advance. Thank you both very much. Can we have the lights up, please, and the screen up a bit?